0: The reading comes from Leviticus, 23, parts between 4 and 44. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord, the holy convocations which you shall proclaim at the time appointed for them. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, On the 15th day of this seventh month, And for seven days is the feast of booths to the Lord. On the first day shall be a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. For seven days you shall present food offerings to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall hold a holy convocation and present a food offering to the Lord. It is a solemn assembly. You shall not do any ordinary work. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim as times of holy convocation. For presenting to the Lord food offerings, burnt offerings, and grain offerings, sacrifices and drink offerings, each on its proper day, besides the Lord's Sabbaths, and besides your gifts, and besides all your vow offerings, and besides all your free will offerings, which you give to the Lord. On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you've gathered in the produce of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord seven days. On the first day shall be a solemn rest. On the eighth day shall be a solemn rest. You shall take on the first day the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm trees and boughs of leafy trees and willows of the brook, and shall rejoice before the Lord your God, seven days. You shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It is a statute forever throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths, that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Thus Moses declared to the people of Israel, the appointed feast of the Lord. Would you join me in prayer?
1: Father, we pray as we open your word that you would open our hearts, that you would work in us by the power of your spirit, or that you would come, and Lord, as we leave this place today, we would be able to say, surely we have been in the presence of the Lord and heard from your voice. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my favorite contemporary columnists for The New York Times is a man named David Brooks, who's written this uh, brief article about a feast that he attended, in a real celebration in New Orleans. And I'm just going to warn you, this may make you hungry. I hope you had breakfast this morning. Uh, listen as, as you hear this. Uh, he says, I was in New Orleans last Saturday night, dining with a wonderful group of people at a culinary landmark called Antoine's. Our host had arranged for a remorseless avalanche of delicious food, Served in prodigious 19th century style. There were about six appetizers, including oysters and foie gras, various lobster confabulations. There were main courses of plenty fish, then crab, then steak. Then dessert floated onto the table a meringue pie about the size of a football helmet. And with it came coffee, but not just any coffee. It was called Devil's Brew. A copper bowl was put in the middle of the table with some rolling. Mixture of brandyish spirits inside. Coffee was poured in, and then the whole concoction set aflame. The waiter burst, thr- thrust a ladle into the inferno and lifted a long, dripping stream of blue fire, hoisting the burning liquid into hypnotizing, slowing, slowly descending cascades. He poured out a circle of flame onto the tablecloth in front of us. It was a lavish pyre of molten, inebriating Java. And then when he had swung around to where I was sitting, I turned and asked the climactic question, is that decaf? (laughs) Now, I love that story because Brooks is sort of telling on himself and he's contrasting this lavish feast with his own ability to sort of enter into that well. And he's sort of telling on himself in that way. And I think that's just like us. I think that's just like us. Now, today, as we're picking up this series of passages, we, we read just part of a larger section from chapter 23, which outlines all the feast days of Israel. Uh, it may seem ridiculous for us to spend any time on this for two reasons. One is that we don't observe these anymore. We, we don't, as a community, observe any of the Feasts of Booths or Weeks or Harvest Festivals or New Moon. We, we, we don't observe any of these festivals. But the second is because we just celebrated Thanksgiving and, you know, what do American bellies that are quite full need any instruction? Do, do we need any instruction on feasting? And yet, I, I would tell you that I think that while we know a lot about eating too much, I'm not sure we honestly know that much about feasting. Feasting is about way more than food, way more than food. Um, one of our challenges, too, this is not just as a culture, but as a denomination, is that we're a very... I don't know, thinky people. Uh, no one has ever said, Presbyterians, you guys are just too joyful and too celebratory. Uh, you get out of hand. So, uh, like Brooks and his decaf comment, where he clearly had a disconnect between that fe- celebration and his ability to enter into it, I think that there's something about us that actually really needs instruction from God's word about feasting. So, today, here's what we're going to look at uh, four points, but listen you got nowhere to go. You're back from Thanksgiving. So four points. I'm going to keep it brief. Don't worry. So here they are. A God who likes to party. A party that's all about God. Uh, fasting and feasting and sharing the feast. So let's look at this. First, a God who likes to party. Now, let's sort of set the scene. Remember, we've been going through Leviticus since August, and this book didn't, doesn't come primarily to us. It first came to a group of Israelite ex-slaves. They had been in bondage in Egypt for 400 years. Would you just pause and think about that for a second? That's longer than our nation has existed by a long shot. 400 years is so many generations that their families could not remember a time that they celebrated. They can't remember a time generationally back, even in the folklore of the family, like we had this birthday party, we had a day off, we had a celebration. 400 years of slavery. Now, as we talked about last week in talking about the Sabbath, another mandated break that God gave, the Israelite people were not given permission to celebrate. Nobody got a day off for their birthday. Nobody got holidays in Egypt. You worked. That's what you did every day. And there were taskmasters that that Pharaoh put over the Hebrew people to make sure that they never stopped working. That they worked every day, all day, without break, without celebration, without opportunity for anything special. So why, is that, why does that matter? Because Pharaoh celebrations for Pharaoh. Feasting is for Pharaoh. And Pharaoh can feast with his court. He can celebrate because you work. He is able to celebrate, but you are never allowed to. Now, and this, this is what's fascinating and shocking as we read this. God mandates celebration for his people. The first people who heard this we talked about last week, God commands them, every week, I want you to take a day off and rest. Shocking news for people after 400 years of slavery. And then you add this, mandated celebration. Mandated celebration. And let me just kind of give you a couple bullet points on this. First, it's for everyone. This is not just for the rich or the entitled, or the privileged. This is for every person. The richest of the rich and the poorest of the poor were commanded to celebrate. Second, it, it's commanded. It's not optional. God says, you will party. Right? If you look at this passage, the part that I had Peter read, verses 33 and, and verse 41, three times, what is the, the, the verb that's in that passage? What are you to do? I give you permission to look at your bulletin. Right? Verses 39 and 41, what, do you, what is the verb there? Celebrate. Rejoice. God commands them to do that. And finally, it's disruptive. Work is not permitted on many of these holidays. In fact, uh, if you total them up on a conservative estimate, 13 days of work off are required to celebrate all of these festivals. 13 days off, that's a conservative estimate. There are a lot of people in this country who don't get 13 days off a year. And they're required, in addition to Sabbaths, to take time off for a party, for a celebration. Now, the the priests, I just want you to think about the role of the priests in all these celebrations, because there's seven of these national celebrations that we read about in these passages. We're going to walk through those in just a moment. But the priests, what is part of their role? They are event coordinators, and not, this isn't just like, hey, turn on the gas grill, have a few friends over. This is a national party. Seven times a year, the priests, and, and particularly three of them that require a, a pilgrimage, are, the priests are called to facilitate a national celebration. This was a big deal. You know, what does this tell you? It tells you that many of our culture's common narratives about who God is are wrong. While a lot of people think of God as a, a dour policeman whose job is to make sure that like no one is having a good time too much out there somewhere, this is a God who loves celebration, who commands rejoicing, and commands people to take off time to do so. I mean, this is a very different picture of God. A God who loves to crank up the grill and crank up the music and have the whole nation over. This is what God loves to do. And if you don't believe me, I want you to think about what we see later in the New Testament, in the ministry of Jesus. Jesus starts his public ministry in John chapter 2 with a wedding at Cana where he performs the first of his messianic signs, his first miracle. And it has nothing to do with healing the sick, making anybody better. It doesn't do do anything to feed lots of people. There is a wedding festival that's going on that's running out of wine. Jesus turns water into wine so the party can continue. This is his coming out event. And and it just goes from there. It goes from there. How many of his teachings are filled with stories about feasting? About great banquets? About when you have a party, you invite this kind of person over? About God who, when he goes out and parties, he invites these people to his party? About being ready for the party? So many of his parables, Jesus' parables, are about celebration. His um. You know, when Jesus regularly ate and drank with sinners, when I was studying for this, this passage from Mark just jumped out at me. Listen to this. Um, As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Matthew got up and followed him. Later, Matthew invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with the many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. And Jesus said, summary statement, I have come not to call not those who think they're righteous, but those who know that they are sinners. Jesus had a reputation of partying too much. He was called uh, a charge leveled at him of being a glutton, somebody who liked wine too much, somebody who liked parties too much. Um, One scholar says this, no disciple would have invented a charge like that, that Jesus was a glutton and a drunkard. That says something. God is happier than people think he should be. Jesus was, um, uh, one, of my, one of my friends I planted a church with in Philly used to pick, He described, this so it's like constant sermon illustration. He's like, you know, Jesus would be at the party handing out beers with a plate of wings, walking around handing out wings and Budweiser. Um, that's the kind of crowd that Jesus was with. He was anointed for his burial at a dinner party with his closest friends. Jesus, at the Last Supper, takes the cup, And he says, I'm not gonna party again until we party together in the new heavens, the new earth. That's when we're really gonna party. And, And you know, Jesus says that there is a great party coming. That heaven is pictured for us, the new heavens, new earth, the end of all things is pictured for us as a great banquet that never ends, a celebration. See, the kingdom of God, you could say, is a party. And most people don't see the kingdom of God that way. A lot of people think of um, heaven as like ongoing waiting for Sunday school, like when you're a little kid. And you're like, I'm forced to wear uncomfortable clothes and sit in a room and fill out pictures that I don't want to color in, right? You know, that's what many people's pictures have. But we see anything but that. God says, and Jesus comes and says, My kingdom, my kingdom is everything that your heart longs for the best celebrations with those that you love all gather together. This is what we long for. See, but it's not just a God who likes to party. What we see here outlined in this passage is a a party or a series of parties that are all about God. Okay, there's nothing particularly Christian about indulging in too much food. There's That's called gluttony, right? There's nothing particularly Christian about over-celebrating. But, but look what we see here. Each of these seven festivals focused on a particular part of God's saving work, God's character, and His provision for us. So I'm going to invite you to open up your bulletin. We printed all these out for you, even though we read only one of them, because I want you to kind of get the overlay of the land. And we've covered some of these in other sermons so far. So I just want you to look at this. Um, these series of seven festivals Seven feasts are sort of congregated in really two months of the year, the first and the seventh month. Look at these with me. Um, First, verses 4 and 5, Passover. Passover commemorated the time when God delivered his people from death in Egypt. If you'll remember, uh, the, the Egyptian Pharaoh was not favorably disposed to just releasing hundreds of thousands of Hebrew slaves and God sent a whole shop of horrors, you know, this series of all these plagues on Egypt. And the one last culminates with the, the Passover, the death of the firstborn. And God instructs his people, if you will this night, kill a lamb and take its blood. Yes, this is gross. Take its blood and paint the doorframe of your house in blood. Then the angel of death, when it passes over Egypt, it will kill the firstborn of every family and livestock, from the Pharaoh to the, to the lowest slave, except for those Who have the blood over the doorway. And so the the people on the 14th day would come together and celebrate. God delivers from death. Look at how God delivers us from death. Um, The second of these, which is actually Passover, is really a part of the second one, and that's why it's not broken out here. Verses 6 through 8 is the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. You can see that in verse 6. The Feast of the Unleavened Bread began with Passover. Feast of the Unleavened Bread started the next day. And it was a time where they, again, uh, they celebrated God who not only freed them from death, but then freed them from slavery. Because the ne- God sends them out. God sends them out um, from, from Egypt and God delivers them from slavery. And so um, that night, as they prepared to leave Egypt, God said, you better get ready. Have a staff in hand. Tie your cloak around you. Eat dinner standing up because you're going to be leaving this night. And so they, they made bread without leaven, without yeast, for it to rise. And so the people would gather yearly and celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread, where they would eat those crackers, unrisen bread. And remember, God is the one who delivers us from slavery. Third festival, verses 9 through 14, the festival of first fruits. This was at the beginning of the harvest. And the people would. this was a celebration where people would actually bring food to God. And say, God, you're the provider of all things for us. The beginning of the feast. And instead of waiting for the end of the, festival, that com- uh, end of the harvest, that comes later, they, at the very beginning of the far- harvest, the family would come together and they would give to God a half gallon of wine, a lamb, and, and then they would bring 33 cups of flour. And there would be these, this offering made to God saying, God, you are the one who takes care of us. You are the one who provides for us. Um, fourth one. Verse 15, the festival of weeks, also called Pentecost, uh, 49 or 50 days after the festival of firstfruits, depending on how you count it. Um, this one's also, uh, this one's right here in verse 15 through 23. And the people would come together and they would say, God, you have provided the harvest. And this was a celebration. It's actually one of the pilgrimage celebrations where they go into um, Jerusalem and celebrate at the tabernacle or the temple and, and say, God, you have provided this was akin to their Thanksgiving day, trusting God that he had, and every year that He will continue to provide. Uh, number five, Feast of Trumpets. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. Rosh Hashanah, the beginning of the new year. Uh, the people would come together. They would sound these gigantic trumpets that would signal the brand new year. And they would begin the year not by uh, what we do where we create New Year's resolutions where like, how am I going to improve myself for this year? they would begin like, how can I get on God's page? And it would be 10 days of reflection and introspection and repentance, a great practice for us, honestly, you know, to begin the year and say, I want this year to be about what God wants in my life. Um, Feast of Trumpets, and it ended with Yom Kippur, which we also talked about a few weeks ago. Yom Kippur, the last day of uh, the Feast of Trumpets, um, the Day of Atonement was a day when the, priest, the high priest would take one goat, we talked about this, they, and put his hands on it, symbolically placing all the guilt of all the people on the goat, and they would send that goat out, out into the wilderness, drive the goat away from the people, and take all the, symbolically taking all the sins of all the people outside the camp. Remember we talked about this? This is one loaded goat. You want this goat to go far away. You don't want the goat appearing in your yard the next morning. So they sent a Gentile with that goat to go out. Later traditions, they would push the goat off a cliff to make sure the goat never came back. No one wants the, the loaded goat back, right? And the other goat, they would take and they would slit its throat and it would bleed, again, talking of, uh, symbolizing God who covers over the shame of our sin. God who deals with our sin. And finally, the last one, the Festival of Booths, verses 33 through 43, which we read, to celebrate God's provision in the wilderness. And this is where all of Israel, this is later generations, would come together. Remember, we lived in tents for a long time after God delivered us from Egypt. We were on one gigantic national camping trip for a long time. And so every year, can you imagine if we did this, All everybody would have a week-long camping trip out in your backyard. And you would live in a propped up kind of lean-to booth that you created out of branches. And you would, you would take work off the first and the last days of that. And remember, God is the one who meets us in hard places. God is the one who sustains us on pilgrimage. God is the one who provides for us, even in the wandering, even in the wilderness. Now, look, I know some of you are like, this is all well and good, but why should we care about this? That's a great question. We don't celebrate these things today. It would be fun for all of us, maybe some of you would think this, to take a a week-long citywide camping trip. You know, you would enjoy that. But, like, this is not something we practice. Why should we know this? Because each of these festivals, each of these feasts, show us something about the character of Jesus and call us to celebrate. They call us to celebrate. In the Passover, we see Jesus Who is the Lamb whose blood was shed to deliver you from death? When Jesus comes to be baptized in the River Jordan by John the Baptist, um, what does John the Baptist say about Jesus? Look, there is the... Come on, you know it. Some of you know it. What is that? The Lamb of God. The Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. In the Feast of Unleavened Bread, we see how Jesus delivers us from slavery to sin. In John chapter 6, Jesus says, Whoever sins is a slave to sin. But if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. In the Day of Atonement, we see Jesus take away the guilt and the shame of our sin as He, like that goat, was driven, Hebrews 13 tells us, driven outside the city where He was crucified on a Roman cross, led there by a Gentile. In the Feast of first fruits, we see Jesus, who is first fruits of our resurrection. 1 Corinthians 14, 15 tells us this, like the beginning of the harvest, the first ear of corn that comes ripe. Jesus' resurrection is the first of the resurrection for every one of us who believe in the Lord Jesus, who when we die will be raised up. Jesus is the first about all those resurrections. In the Feast of Weeks, the same day of Pentecost, in the book of Acts, we see Jesus, drawing all people to Himself by the power of the Holy Spirit, His gospel is proclaimed. And on that day, as the Spirit is sent, 3,000 people come to the Lord from all kinds of nations and people. And we see, again, Jesus is bringing in the harvest. The Feast of Trumpets reminds us that at the last trumpet, the dead in Christ will rise and that Jesus will return to start not a new year, but a whole new epoch. He'll come and bring final judgment and the new heavens and the new earth, and it will be a time when there is no more crying, no more sighing, no more sadness, no more sickness, no more death. And finally, the Feast of Booths, we see Jesus who provides for us in the midst of our hardship, in the pain, in the pilgrimage of not being in the promised land yet, of people who walk through... See, do you see? Like, in these feast days, we see, we read these things, we're like, yes, this is what my Savior does. This is what my Jesus does for me. He does all these things. We sometimes summarize too briefly the work of Christ on our behalf. Like, oh, He died for sins. Yeah, yeah, and way more. (laughs) You know, like, we can write books upon this stuff. The feast days... See, this this is where... You know, they, they call to us. Are we not supposed to be people of celebration? Do we not have something to celebrate? You know, um, feasting. Therefore, we know a lot about overeating, but feasting is about it's it's about the Lord together, enjoying Him and His gifts. That's what feasting really is. And you can see in, in all these feasts, it's about the food, but it's not about the food, right? It, it's a, it's there's a celebration. There's a taking of work, but it's it's something much deeper than that. It's in the hearts of the worshipers who are like, that's my God. That's what he's done for me. I want you to think about um, two types of meals that I think you've probably had. You know, think about what may have been one of the best meals of your life in a restaurant, around a table, where everything is great, and yet there's just something within the group that's kind of off right some of you this was thanksgiving for you you're like my family comes together we have the best food and yet the relationships are broken there's this sense of like what could be but it's not you want to relate to that have you had those kind of meals where you're like everything's great but mm." and then there are the other kind uh, the other kind where you're eating together with other people, and maybe it's even just mediocre food, okay? You're, you're, you're having a very kind of normal, even thrown-together meal, and yet it's with some people that you dearly love and dearly love you, and you're like, that was a taste of heaven. And it's not because the food is amazing. It's because you, have, you experience something in that meal that's like, yeah, this is what it's supposed to be like, even if it's Taco Bell. Right. Have you all had those, those, both of those or some form of those where you're like, this but not this, but that? Right? This is what's pictured for us. This is what feasting is. Enjoying Jesus together, celebrating, enjoying his gifts. Now, uh, One thing that's fascinating about studying this is that there is rightfully a time for feasting and yet also a time for fasting. And I want to highlight this, because if you notice, uh, yes, there are these seven feasts that are laid out for the people to practice, and yet not all the year was feasting, right? I mean, there were days when you didn't feast. And that particularly needs to be said in Raleigh, North Carolina, in 2018. Because we live in one of the most overfed and entitled places in the world where right now you can have a feast every day. You know, I remember um, my grandparents' generation, the greatest generation, born in the Depression era, fought World War II, um, hearing how, like, their family, they, they never went out to eat. Like, not once. Not like, oh, where are we going this week? But, like, not ever. Um, but not us. I mean, you know, we're in a celebratory Feasting culture where it's like, oh, it's five o'clock somewhere, right? I mean, that's the attitude. Uh, you know, our children, a lot of them, grow up with like desserts for every night. Treats are not treats because they're all the time, right? Like, you know, that's that's the culture we're in, where feasting seems to be a all the time, and you can pick every night of the week one place you want to go feast at. Um, and when when every meal is indulgence, there's something about true feasting that's actually lost. There's something that's lost in that. See, um, in the Old Testament, God structured the seasons. Like I said, these feasts are focused around the first and the seventh month primarily. And that meant that there were times for feasting, but there were also times for fasting. There were times for giving yourself um, to longing for the feast. See, if there's a longing, it creates something special about the feast. And God tells us even in the New Testament, there are right places for us, for fasting, for you know, discerning God's will, uh, for growing in yourself a hunger for God in your life. I'm going to go without, so I learned to hunger more for Him. You know, do you know that traditionally you didn't have Christmas parties during most of December? Traditionally, the church um, throughout the years that celebrated the church calendar, Advent was a time for fasting, not feasting. Christmas and those weeks afterward, that's why we sing the 12 days of Christmas, those are the days when you feast. After Christmas, Advent was a time of looking forward and longing and saying, you know what, I, just like the Israelite people were longing for Jesus to come, I'm longing for Jesus to come back. It was a time of building an appetite, not overindulging in it. Yeah, Lent, the same thing, it was a time up before Easter. Easter was the big feast time, but Lent was a time for, recon- for reflection and repentance. We're saying, I'm going to take some time to focus on the Lord and get my heart right with Him so that when Easter comes, it is a celebration. Lots of ham, right? That, that's, that's what's pictured. Um, but when we are, we're people who are overfed, when feasting is every day, like the meaning of feasting is actually gone. See, fast days reminded the people, there is a not yet. There's a not yet to the kingdom of God. Like this isn't all there is. Jesus promises to come back. He promises to to fulfill all the promises with regard to to making everything right. And so fasting prepares you for that. Fasting makes us hungry for the ultimate feast. Yeah, not all the time should be feasting and celebration. I know that some of you are inwardly, this is where you are this morning. You're like, yeah. You know, I, I look around and the world is so broken. I mean, how can you talk about feasting? Like the world, I look around and there's poverty and there's lots of people who don't know Jesus and there are unreached people groups and there's injustice and the list goes on. You're like, the burdens. How can you be talking about feasting in the time of of this burden? And I think there's something right about that. Let me just affirm that. Like there is a right place for us for lamenting and fasting and saying, Lord, what would you do? Um, But that doesn't eclipse this. That the church of Jesus Christ, we are empty tomb people, aren't we? Aren't we, the gates of hell will not stand against the church of the Lord Jesus Christ people? Aren't we a Jesus is coming back people? See, when we when, there's a right place of fasting and feasting in this. There's a sense of longing. where There's a sense of saying, hey, without there being justice, there can't be a party. Without there being the spread of the gospel, there can't be an ultimate party. Without meeting the, the needs of the poor, there can't be a party for everybody. And yet we know that there is a party that's coming. And so, look, we hold both of those things together. Fasting and feasting, both are right. They proclaim different things. If there's anything that Christianity is about, it is clear-eyed confidence, in Jesus is going to return and set all things right. So we are a fasting people, and we're a feasting people. Well, uh, There's a picture that captures this best from uh, C.S. Lewis's Narnia book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Um, it's, a, it's a child's fantasy book, children's fantasy book about uh, a kingdom of talking animals, where there's this witch that shows up in the kingdom and makes it always wintertime and never Christmas. And she's got all of the realm of Narnia under her spell. Everything is frozen, and, and there's, there's no joy. There's no celebration. Well, as the book progresses, you hear whispers that the true king is coming back to make everything right. And as he begins to make his way back, the power of the white witch over the creation over the, the land of Narnia begins to fade, and what the wintertime begins to thaw, and it becomes Christmas time. And so she comes, the white witch is driving her sleigh with her reindeer through the woods, and she comes upon this little party of animals, and they're celebrating, and this is uh, an Englishman, so he says that there are decorations, holly, and uh, something like plum pudding, right? And they're, they're having this little celebration, and she's incensed at this, Because it's a sign that her power is weakening. And um, she says, um, she asks them to deny the good news, which they refuse. And then, of course, it's a kid's book. She turns them into stone, right? She turns them into stone. Why? Because the merry feast to the evil witch was, it was a declaration of war. And that is so for us. The feast is a declaration of war against the status quo. When we come together and celebrate as God's people, We are saying, this is not the way it's going to be. You know, I was at a party this this fall, and um, one of my friends pulls out this document. He's like, we're going to read this liturgy. Uh, It's from this uh, website called Every Moment Holy, and, and it's this liturgy about feasting. And this is what it said. We said these words, to gather joyfully is indeed a serious affair. For feasting and all enjoyments gratefully taken are at their heart acts of war. In celebrating this feast, we declare that evil and death and suffering and loss and sorrow and tears will not have the final word. See, isn't that true? See, when God's people gather, we come together around Jesus and we enjoy his gifts, whether that's your grandmother pulling out the casserole or we gather around the smoker with the big pork butt, and we're all about to dig in. What we're doing is we're saying there is a God. And this is not all there is, and we celebrate that his kingdom is real. We have something worth celebrating, and we wait, and we look, and we taste, we remember. A couple applications for you this morning, and I hope you wear your steel-toed boots because I'm going to step on your toes. Um, Three of them, real quick. Worship. Celebratory worship. Celebrating and rejoicing in worship. Can we just say this? This is hard for us as a church. Um, the main job that I gave Danny Yancey when uh, I asked him to come and be our director of music was this. One thing, I'm like, Danny, I want you to find the joy button on the dashboard and push it real hard. And and that's because, to be honest, we struggle to find expression for joy and celebration sometimes in our worship. I find we're, we're sort of holding back as a community a lot of times. Like, I don't know. Like, am I supposed to sing real loud? Am I, am I supposed to clap? Like, look, if you clap, you clap like a golf clap. You know, like, right, right. You know, like, it's, it's like, can we raise our hand? No. You know, like, we're just we're so held back. And, you know, you could say, well, that's a lot of things. Well, you know, like, okay, this church has a lot of white people. You could say that. You could say, well, it's, okay, it's Presbyterian. You could say that. But look, 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 I don't believe any of that. Because we live at ground zero of the ACC. We are ground zero for the ACC. And I've seen you people. Right? Like, my first, my first spring in Raleigh, I'm like, ACC tournament weekend, I'm like, what happened? Did everyone go away? Right? there? No, there's, there, everybody's partying because it's the ACC tournament, right? So I know you know how to do this. I know you know how to do crazy, and I know you know how to celebrate. I know you know how to rejoice. Can we learn? Can our affect in worship begin to express the glory and the greatness of our God? Could our um, emotional response to Jesus maybe, just maybe, be a bit more on par with the greatness of our salvation and the surety of what he's going to do? Can we try this? I mean, that's not Danny's job. That's our job. Can we take a step? Second, celebrations with friends. Um, In his book, Robert Putnam's book, Bowling Alone, which is over 20 years old now, he chronicles how celebration and relationship are circling the drain in our culture. This is some of his stats. He says, uh, and the title of the book, Bowling Alone, comes from his observation that bowling leagues, people getting together to do something dumb like bowling, right? Uh, Those are going down. This is what he says. Um, The number of people playing cards together is down 25%. I have no idea how he measured that, but he just knows (laughs) it. Uh, The number of bars and nightclubs and taverns where people used to congregate, down 40%. Full-service restaurants where people walk in, sit down, have a meal together, down 25%. The number of fast-food restaurants are up 100% so that people can eat alone in their cars. Having a social evening with neighbors, down 33%. Having friends over to your home is down 45%. So look, inviting people over to your house is just countercultural. It it is super revolutionary to do that. Here's one thing I know. Um, Raleigh is not going to be changed by any of my sermons. It's not. Raleigh's not going to be changed because I, you know, I do a great job preaching. Our children's classes are awesome. Um, what's going to change Raleigh is your hospitality and your parties and your including people and your inviting people in because I mean, how many for you the gospel came to you in a relational fashion through someone saying hey I want you to know come on, come over. Be part of my family life. Hey, we have a drop-in. You know that, That's how the gospel came to most of us, was open doors and open arms and open refrigerators and open wallets. One of the things that we need to learn is that like hospitality is expensive. Having parties and welcoming people, it, it costs. It costs you time. It costs you money. And yet, it is so, so worth it. And some of you are here because of it. So look, you know... Um, Let's not be like Judas Iscariot who saw like money being wasted on Jesus, poured out, and like, this money could be given for the poor. What if it looked like, what would it be like if our church was known for being a little too joyful and there were just a little too many parties for no reason? There was just a little too much celebrating that we got a little carried away because Jesus is that great. We love being together and celebrating him. I mean, what could happen? What could happen? Um, Finally, the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is the new covenant fulfillment of these feasts, particularly Passover. And it's a time where we gather every week around this table. And I know some of you didn't grow up with that. You're like, hey, we do this so much, I'm afraid it's going to get old. You know what? It doesn't get old if you do it right. You see, if you think of what we're doing here as observing the Lord's Supper, like it's an event, then you missed it. If you think of it as participating or partaking in the Lord's Supper, as if it's just a little bit, that doesn't cut it. We celebrate the Lord's Supper. We savor it. It's hors d'oeuvres for the great banquet to come. You know, my wife is uh, in seminary doing a paper on the Lord's Supper, so this is a little runoff from her. But uh, I love this. One of the books that she was looking at says, you know, Jesus didn't give us bread and water for the Lord's Supper. It's not like, hey, let's get by on this. Hope you can get by until I come back. No, no, he gave us bread and wine. Not bread and grape juice. In the Bible, wine is given to gladden the hearts of men. So there is a celebratory aspect not a just-get-by aspect. There is a hors d'oeuvres for the kingdom of God aspect of what we celebrate every week. People of God, why so somber? You know, why so restrained? Why hold back your praise and temper your thanks? Why don't you let loose? Why don't we celebrate what is worthy of all celebration more than we could articulate or imagine? Because there is an empty tomb. There is a risen king. There is a sure and certain future. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.